The Ponce de Leon Inlet sits just north of New Smyrna Beach. The Halifax River flows south, but at the Ponce Inlet, the Halifax River changes. Due to the change of flow and the influx of ocean water from the inlet, it becomes the Indian River, north. From here, this river flows almost 200 miles south, intersecting several other lagoons and estuaries. Altogether, they make up the Indian River Lagoon, the most biologically diverse estuary in North America. It has over 2,200 animal species and over 2,100 plant species. The lagoon itself is brackish, meaning it contains both fresh and salt water. It runs along several state parks, a national wildlife refuge, and weaves through one of the largest chains of barrier islands in the United States. It flows south, all the way to West Palm Beach. The lagoon covers 353 square miles. And what's more impressive than that is the lagoon's watershed. A watershed is mostly land, areas that move smaller bodies of water together and push them toward outflow points, where the water joins up into the greater body. The Indian River Lagoon's watershed is almost four times larger than the main body itself. While the lagoon runs along five counties, the watershed itself covers seven counties, making the lagoon's influence on the east coast of Florida much larger than it looks. All that water can't be seen or observed or tracked. It's underground, running through the streets, filling the basins. Out of sight, a couple hundred years ago, our state soil was waiting for the perfect opportunity to do the impossible. Welcome to Weed 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I'm Nick D'Alessandro. For the next two weeks, I'll be telling the story of the Indian River Fruit Company. This week is part one, Watershed. Last month, in search of the ghost towns around Cape Canaveral, I found my way to Merritt Island, where the Kennedy Space Center is currently situated. The town of Shiloh was a notable ghost town, and a great visit, home to four small gravestones and fenced-off plots. About two minutes further south along the same road was a bridge where the town of Allenhurst had once lived. It is between these two towns, Shiloh and Allenhurst, that another plot was situated. A man named Douglas Dummett lived there, and his citrus trees changed Florida forever. But citrus in Florida didn't begin with Dummett. See, citrus is not native to North America. Non-native species can be notably dangerous to our ecosystem, but citrus has been on this continent since the 15th century, thanks to the Spanish. We aren't sure entirely who brought citrus to Florida, but we can assume it was Ponce de Leon who came to Florida in 1513. He brought the sour orange seed with him, as oranges were highly diverse fruits that not only were sustainable, but also prevented scurvy and other diseases for sailors. Our first citrus seeds wound up in St. Augustine, naturally, a couple dozen miles north of the Indian River Lagoon. And when the Spanish left, the locals took that citrus. The native Floridians, likely the Timaqua tribe, as they were very populous in the region around St. Augustine, took the seed and spread it everywhere. Citrus was now growing wild, naturally, and tribes would farm that citrus themselves. In the 1700s, however, citrus stalled. Spain was dominating the world with their own citrus industry by growing it in their country. Any citrus that was growing here in Florida was for quote-unquote medical reasons. We were passed back and forth between the British and the Spanish in the late 18th century, and then we stalled. Citrus was the agriculture of the natives, and the colonizers had no interest in the crop. In the 19th century, however, things changed. 
Florida became the possession of the United States in 1821, and citrus groves started popping up in the north of Florida, as well as other areas north of our own border. 1835 arrived, and with it came a massive freeze. It was so significant that it froze the St. John's River. But that did not necessarily mean bad news for Florida, as Florida is warmer than certain northern neighbors of ours, that special Florida agriculture and environment became the ideal spot for citrus, instead of Georgia or South Carolina. And the decades that followed, Florida became the citrus hub that it is today. Something about Florida's ecosystem just works. We're an incredibly unique place with a subtropical climate and mostly sandy soil and land covering the entire peninsula, but more than the agricultural success, there's the novelty. The only other place that was growing citrus was California, and they didn't join the country until 1850. But Florida is different. Florida grows Florida citrus, and Florida citrus prospers in the Florida weather. Florida can also get quite cold, even as cold as freezing, and some citrus actually grows sweeter with cold air and warm waters. But below 30 degrees Fahrenheit, things get worse for citrus, as Florida would soon see. We started shipping north by the 1870s using railroads, and word spread. If you wanted to be a part of this, Florida is the place to be. Bring your farm down here, send your money down south. Florida is the place. We were having a gold rush, basically, and everyone wanted to get their hand on the ball. Citrus was our industry, and it was set to create Florida's destiny forever. The Florida citrus industry ended, however, on December 29, 1894. A freeze slammed the state of Florida, bringing temperatures as low as 18 degrees Fahrenheit. The oranges died, turning jet black while still on the trees. Orlando, which was a major citrus hub at the time, went into chaos. Citrus was marked as worthless. Several businessmen in the town took their lives. It was the end. Until it wasn't. January of 1895 was wet and prosperous for these mature trees that had survived the December freeze. Rebirth was happening all over the state and farmers began to work harder. This freeze couldn't take them down and the future was theirs for the taking. Until February 7th. The temperatures this time fell to 17 degrees. The sap that had been growing so well inside the trees froze solid. Tree trunks split in cacophonous explosions. The young trees died in December, and the old trees died in February. Citrus was the backbone of Florida's existence at that moment, with entire towns built around the industry, banks and titans sending all their money down here into these farms. And with one freak of nature moment, the citrus industry died, and Florida's economy died with it. Except for Douglas Dummett. I hope you haven't forgotten Douglas Dummett, because his grove survived the freeze in the 30s and the freeze in 1894, and the freeze in 1895, Douglas Dummett's small plot in the north of Merritt Island survived. Dummett's story is that of legend. He came to Florida with his father, Colonel Thomas Dummett. As they sailed north towards St. Augustine, they passed Merritt Island and caught a whiff of the wild orange blossoms growing from the coast. As an adult, he became a soldier who fought in the Second Seminole War. This war was about colonization, and it lasted for seven years, making it the longest war fought over native persons' removal. The Seminole tribe was situated in the center of the state, but the state government wanted them out. They needed that land for their own purposes, but the Seminoles naturally, of course, refused to leave. They, alongside the Florida legend Osceola, ambushed troops. 
The war from there was vicious, with the Seminoles destroying several economic outposts in the state, but eventually losing steam. The Seminoles lost, and they were displaced out of state. To ensure white settlement in the state, the Armed Occupation Act of 1842 was passed, and the Seminole tribe left. Florida was no longer their home. It is from this act in 1842 that veteran Douglas Dummett received his land. He received a plot of land on Merritt Island where he had smelled those blossoms nearly 30 years previous, the same blossoms that had been planted and cultivated by the tribes he had just wiped away from the state. Then he himself started growing his trees. He made a hybrid tree, however, not just any normal tree. He combined sour oranges and sweet oranges to make a new crop of delicious fruit. He passed away in 1873, and his land was bought by an Italian duke who kept the groves running. Then the freezes came, but Dummett's trees did not perish. The new species of citrus certainly helped keep the tree safe from turning coal black and dying. But there was something else in play, the Indian River Lagoon. The lagoon flows around Merritt Island, and since it is part of the Gulf Stream waters, the ocean is inherently warmer, meaning the watershed is inherently warmer meaning the soil is inherently warmer. The Indian River Lagoon has a lot of explanation as to why it's so important and why its water is so essential to the growth in the state. It's warm, it's huge, it's diverse, but there's something else to it too. The Indian River Lagoon's water is magic. And I'm not the only one to think it. The 20th century came and the citrus industry was struggling to come back. The spots around the Indian River became Citrus's Garden of Eden. You could grow the fruit using that magic water, then pop it on a nearby river and send it north. The fruit from Indian River became famous. If you want good oranges, that's the place to be. Naturally, people started claiming their fruit came from Indian River as well, even though they weren't, hopping on that bandwagon of that yet unestablished brand name. Knowing how essential this brand was going to be, a man named Will Lee gathered all the farmers in the area and, with the help of the Federal Trade Commission, issued a cease and desist in 1930. If you grew oranges along the Indian River, that was the only place where you could use that name. As time went on, farmers worked to establish what exactly that meant. What is the Indian River? How far is that defined? Obviously, the northern edge in Ponce Inlet and the southern edge in Palm Beach were set, but how far west did it go? How could we establish those things? Luckily, the lagoon answered that question for them. The watershed. If the lagoon is so special, then the water that feeds the lagoon should be just as significant. And the lines were drawn and are held to this day very strictly. If you are a grower in the region and you live just a mile outside of the district, you can't call yourself an Indian River grower. You have to be in the district. That's it. The Indian River Citrus League still protects the local groves and farmers to this day. The fruit grown in this region is considered by many worldwide to be the best oranges and grapefruits on the planet. Though the region doesn't yield particularly high amounts of crop, the quality of the crop is where the prosperity comes from. For decades, Indian River citrus has been considered to be the standard for Florida oranges. Citrus expands beyond this particular area, of course, employing almost 76,000 residents statewide, according to VisitFlorida.com. Still, to this day, Florida creates more than 70% of the country's supply of citrus. 90% of American orange juice is made from Florida oranges. To put it simply, we're it. Our state has become synonymous with the crop. Our license plates have oranges. The signs that welcome people on the interstates have oranges. Today, it's an essential cornerstone of our culture, 
and our economy. That would not be the case if it wasn't for Dummett's Grove, and that grove wouldn't have succeeded without the lagoon and its watershed. In the golden age of citrus in the 20s and 40s, groves started painting decorations on their boxes. These decorations represented their brand, and often mentioned the Indian River if they were in the district. They're beautiful, intricately designed. They have plants, birds, people, any sort of decoration that could sell the brand more. But there's one thing that is on almost all of the boxes. Water. But it's not the golden age of citrus anymore. It's almost 2019, close to 200 years since that first freeze that brought citrus to the state. I visited the Indian River Citrus District in search of the fruit, in search of the groves, in search of the lagoon. I discovered these beautiful farms and reconstructed habitats and a shrinking industry. It's going away. Why are there less and less citrus groves? And what would Florida be without our quintessential export? Who are we without citrus? Those questions and more next week in part two of our exploration into the Indian River Fruit Company. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. These adventures are so much fun to create, and I hope that you enjoy listening to them as much as I enjoy telling them. Please subscribe and leave a review, letting me know just how much you love it. All the music in this episode is from Lobo Loco. The songs are listed in the description below alongside the sources that I used. If you have a question or want to suggest an episode topic, you can reach me at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. Join me next week for the next part of our story. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourselves, be good to each other, and drink more water. Have a good one.